Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 112. I'm Ken, and this week on the podcast, I'll be joined by Mitch McEwen, principal of Brooklyn-based Ann Office, McEwen Studio, and associate professor of Princeton School of Architecture. Also joining us will be Catherine Darnstadt, principal and founder of Chicago-based Latent Design. And lastly, first time on the podcast, Rosa Shang, principal with California-based Smith Group JJR and president-elect of AIA San Francisco. This episode will reflect on what has and hasn't changed in the profession, education, and activism one year post-hashtag NotMyAIA, and the reaction to Trump and the current policies by this administration and how they affect culture and the profession. So I'm Catherine Darnstead. I'm the founder of Leighton Design. We are a boutique architecture firm based in Chicago, focusing on using design as a tool for better spaces and systems. Our projects range from tactical urbanism to policy to working on prototypes for urban agriculture and then also have been working on a variety of built environment ventures that have culminated into modular construction of pop-up retail spaces for the city of Chicago. Mitch, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Great. I'm Mitch McEwen. I'm founder, co-founder of Ann Office, which is between Brooklyn and New York, and also principal of McEwen Studio, where I team up with uh, landscape architects and work with clients mainly in Detroit on um, projects that range typically having to do with either houses or, or open land. And I'm also an assistant professor at the School of Architecture at Princeton, where I teach in drawing and fabrication and architecture studios. Hi, Rosa. How are you doing? Hi. <laughs> so my name is Rosa Shang. I am a, a new principal at Smith Group, three weeks in, and that is after a 20-year career with Bolin Swinsky Jackson, which I have enjoyed greatly working on a variety of projects from high-end retail for Apple glass staircases and cubes and whatnot to higher education, where I'm doing a lot of work with student engagement, student experience, as well as some thought leadership on where higher education is going and how it could be more accessible, just and equitable. And that ties into work that I'm doing with the AIA, uh, namely in San Francisco through Equity by Design, which you may have heard of. I was the founder of that. But in the coming year, I will become the AIA San Francisco president. And I just learned that I will be the first Asian American president, female of the chapter ever. So that's kind of a Congrats. surprise. <laughs> Congrats. Thank you. Wow. Uh, where to begin? This podcast, I really wanted to get to today because I think it was a year ago when we when we, we had our, our morose podcast post-2016 election. It was right the day after. It was probably the, the re most ridiculous podcast we, we've done, partly because it was, I think, the collective freak out of well-intentioned white people that was kind of displayed that day, myself included, that, oh my God, racism still exists in this country and we still have Barack Obama didn't solve all the problems. So we spent our time kind of licking our wounds and kind of dizzying around in the in what just ha had happened. But even just a few days later, we were encountering issues with the AIA and not my AIA came up not too long after the election. And I thought it might be a good opportunity to kind of see where all of you thought we were. You know, it's a short year. Yesterday we had another election. It seemed to be at least a, a pushback against the agenda that's going on in Washington. And I just wanted to get a sense of how you felt a year later. Where do you see some of the issues going forward? How do you feel about the future? Mitch? 
Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, it, the, the election results are great, right? So I'm I'm excited about what's happening. I, I finally live in a blue state, which honestly, even when I lived in New York City, I couldn't say that because mm. I, I left, mm-hmm. you know, when, when Cuomo came in pretty much. So it's the first time since I lived in California over a decade ago that I've been able to say I live in a in a blue state. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in Washington, D.C., you know, being someone who's who's really heavily invested in, in urbanism and the discipline. I I think it's where our politics in this country get the most complex. These these counties and in, in, in places that we don't know whether to call them rural or suburban. So, you know, and it has to do with transportation infrastructure as far as how we talk about it in the discipline, right? But there's so much more there. So I get kind of fascinated looking at where things end up being red and blue when we look at these maps state by state and just kind of understanding that in, in terms of how it relates to, you know, where are their major cities, where are their army and navy bases, where are there different modes of infrastructure that are related to kind of different latent ideologies that are spread throughout this country. And that that's interesting that you brought that up. I, I noticed that you tweeted something, I think today, or was it last night, where was noticing a, a blue, a particular blue county in Utah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and I wasn't sure if that's what you were thinking about, but I was interested in what you were thinking about when you were tweeting that. Well, I mean, as far as architecture, it's just I feel like we're so behind in the discipline. And that's another conversation. But, you know, I do think that we're adept at, at reading maps. Right. And, and just looking for patterns. And, and so I'm fascinated when, you know, we see the election results and mm-hmm. you're just looking at just these pockets of blue. And, and of course, thinking about what this kind of puppet president that we have now, even he has a kind of visual registration of the politics of this country where he talks about the sea of red during the national election, right? I mean, there's a geography of really low density that tends to be more conservative in this country. So when I was looking at the, the Utah results, it, it kind of fascinated me. It immediately popped out. Here's light blue that's not near a major city that I recognize. And, and just quickly looking at Wikipedia, what became evident about this place with a small town, a small city, is that it was defined by its mountain biking trails and even by a unicycle festival, you know? So it just kind of pops out that, okay, already just in the geography, there's another way of thinking about about the kind of low density condition there. You know, when you picture a unicycle festival, it's already a kind of performance of something that that is not the, the SUV and it's kind of, you know, normative patriotic jingoism. You know, so, uh, Catherine, what about you? I mean, when I was thinking about today, I was thinking specifically about not my AIA. Your AIA chat was wonderful. I have to tell you, it was uh, thoroughly engaging. And I, it's the first one I participated in. And it was uh, really uh, quite an experience. And so I, I got I was wondering, how, how do you feel a year out when you're thinking about that hashtag? And, and I still use it. <laughs> <laughs> To remind people, but uh, I just wanted to, what's your sense? I think my sense a year out, specifically through the lens of not my AIA and what it produced and what it didn't produce, is there's the optimism that came from something that was this critical introspective moment is still the piece that gives me hope moving forward. You know, when we came to post-election and not my AIA came out of a place of how could we be, be so forgetful of the election season, and then how could we be so acquiescent 
immediately. And I think hearing how some of organizations and individuals and firms and AIA chapters really positioned themselves and said, we are going to take this moment to make a stance and look at our ethics and look at how we want to move forward and look at that within our collective was an incredibly inspiring and solidifying moment out of saying, hey, we don't agree with this, but how can we make ourselves better? And that is what gives me motivation moving forward. I think when you see champions like Rosa and many other people looking at how do you move that beast or eat that elephant, I think is what you say. <laughs> uh, no, eat the whale is what yes. Rosa always says um, of how do you move this professional organization. Over this past year, I, I still very much so respect that, but I, I look more and more and more as how can we and and do we as a profession of architecture need the professional organization of AIA to, to validate us? And I think that's what I start to look at in our students, our emerging firms, our incredibly talented multidisciplinary design disciplines of they're the ones who are advocating more forcefully for the profession than our professional organization. And that is still now this kind of split moving forward that I am greatly inspired by and moved and moved by to think of here's a future of the profession that is going to look radically different than how it does during convention. And those are the two worlds that I still fall between, I guess, as as a practitioner, an emerging practitioner, but then also as an AIA member of just seeing that there is even this dichotomy within our small profession moving in two directions, one trying to move what is uh, is viewed as a slightly stagnant organization forward and one that's just saying we're just not even going to deal with that and move forward at their own pace and make their own profession out of that. And maybe and sometimes might be um, radically against that profession. But I think that discourse and that disagreement is so necessary right now to have really constructive criticism as we look within our profession and try and understand where we actually lie and how do we talk about our value while understanding we have been you know, wildly neglecting areas of our country and how we look at design and design systems. Absolutely. So Rosa, I've been interested in your in your work and what you've done for the AIA. And what, what, do you, what was your sense of when Not My AIA came out? I mean, I'm an AIA member. I felt that was a really strong message to kind of put out there. And I thought it started to gather some steam. I was literally having a tweet back and forth with Catherine that yeah. Saturday. <laughs> did. I couldn't put my phone down. My husband's like, what are you doing? Uh, because I was angry too. I was angry because we had invested all this time and energy in trying to make the profession more equitable, trying to get mm -hmm. the Institute on board. It was kind of, it felt like swimming upstream, you know, the salmon, right? The salmon run and all this resistance and at the same time, we had achieved so much and yet we were pushed back by this onslaught of not only negative energy, but just what seemed like at the time, you know, not very helpful in terms of supporting us. And I think there was a lot of, we wrote a letter, uh, we did a, a bunch of us that happened to be in the Equity by Design core group. We did not publish it on the Equity by Design website because it is part of AIA and we felt that we are speaking more politically then, you know, it could be stomached on that particular website at that particular time. So we actually had another website called the Equity Alliance that I had as kind of like a ghost website meant to connect all the architects out there who believe in 
justice and equity and diversity inclusion, but it seemed to be a perfect platform to voice our concerns of why we thought that the response was not right and what we wanted the AIA to do about it. It wasn't just, we're mad at you. It was, we're mad at you and we want you to do X, Y, and Z. And to my surprise, they have said, okay, well, we're going to try to do X, Y, and Z. Um, Some of it's worked really well. Some of it's still in progress. But at least there is an effort by the current leadership, Thomas Vanier being one of our hugest champions, I think, not only in the conference on Orlando, but also, you know, in reaction to a lot of different criticism about that, but really trying to make sure that we as an institute have a clear voice on the things that represent who architects are, what are our values uh, collectively, irregardless of whether we're red or blue or green or black or whatever we are. You know, it's interesting because I was talking to my daughter last night about reality and abstraction and the complexity of information of what we have to deal with and how we abstract it and chunk it out so much so that we can understand and digest it. But at the same time, we lose valuable nuances. So how do we go forward without labeling people, without bifurcating our country to address the imminent issues that we all face, whether it's housing, affordable housing, whether it's transportation congestion, whether it's lack of vital resources, air and clean water. And we're all in this together. We have one globe unless we're going to you know, fly off to Mars. But how do we get people to the table, irregardless of the vast, diverse differences that we all have, right? So that's been my kind of year's challenge to myself. And I think we all have a piece in this puzzle. It's not, oh, AIA does this. I hear a lot of, oh, AIA doesn't do this. AIA should do this. But it's like, well, we're all members of an organization. If we are members, what are we doing about it? So that's a question I pose to not just us in the room, but that the audience listening to the podcast, what are we doing about all these issues? Well, I guess it's back to you, Rosa. I always, I wonder, do we have to do this through the professional organization? I mean, I, I think as you expand on what we as individuals, what can we do? I think it's a, what's interesting about this moment is that you're seeing new formations of alliances and new formations of both political and design energies being formed, whether you go to architecture lobby in one way, Q space, or even the individual AIA chapters or individual architectural organization firms and the manifestos that they create. What does it look like? And can we allow for this diversity of design opinions to really exist as a way to talk about our profession. Oh, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. I feel that that's what the Equity Alliance was meant to do. This ghost website, which still exists, (laughs) which is the kind of mixing melting pot of all the different people who are practicing in the built environment. Let's just call it that. That there are different alignments of whether organizations or thoughts or approaches, but that they can kind of coexist in a sharing and supportive way that we can hear each other's ideas and disagree, but also come to a common understanding of where do we go from here, right? At the end of the day, we could talk ourselves blue in the face, but imminently there are challenges. So however we approach it, how do we solve those challenges? 
So this conversation is so vague. I'm, I must say I'm not really sure what we're talking about, but I'm glad that we are talking and I appreciate the the, the work that folks are doing because I, I can't deal with an institution like AIA. So mm-hmm. you know, more power to you guys for, for dealing with it. But what strikes me is that a comparable association like the American Medical Association doesn't seem to have the same crippling problems that the AIA has, right? So when healthcare is under attack, the American Medical Association can have a coherent position, right? That lobbies for patients in relationship to hospitals, right? That's aware about policy and aware of what people need to be healthy, right? And it seems that there's something, and maybe it's too much to unpack in one conversation, but I think it's been time to unpack it over this, the course of this year. What is it in architecture in this country and in the AIA that keeps it from being coherent, that keeps it from being effective, right, at, at, at its core, right, at its core? So, for example, one thing specific, it's anti-urbanist. Much of the AIA is anti-urbanist, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of attached itself to the single family house and the proliferation of the single family house and the McMansion and all of the various kinds of subsidies and apparatus around that, right? So that's, that's one really deep problem in something like what an American architecture institution might lobby for, right? I beg to differ on that anti-urbanist approach because I am pro-urbanist and I believe a lot of the large chapters are. So to say that, again, it's the abstraction of an organization into an entirety of one opinion, that troubles me. There are a lot of different people who happen to belong to AIA that have supportive opinions or opposing opinions. But to say AIA is one thing or the other isn't exactly true. I think I think to split the difference between you two, I think Mitch has something really interesting to point out because just recently the AIA came out very strongly against the Republican tax plan because it takes away a homeowner exemption, right? More strongly in a position that they came out with that they are against it because the homeowner exemption would be removed, thus making the case for, as Mitch was saying, you know, we have an ingrained, let's do single family, low density type of built environment development. Whereas if you look back at statements over the last year, we came out against Paris, but and we had um, we had thoughts and we wanted to nudge the administration not to not to leave the Paris climate agreement. And when, you know, and then you look at the very beginning of a year ago where it was like, we hope infrastructure works for everyone and we'll back infrastructure. So we've been, I think, as the institution has been getting more forceful to make statements, but I think it's difficult for the institution to do so because we're dealing with a design-based a design-based professional organization that can have a myriad of opinions versus a medical-based organization which has opinions, but then there's also real facts. Like we don't talk about what we do as a fact-based organization in like clear, cut and dry, let's talk about true metrics. We sometimes do it, but we don't do it every single time. We talk more about the beauty and the moments and the ephemeral qualities of architecture, which then gets lumped into different categories. You know, I, as, as a member, I often find myself wondering what we're doing as well. Um, it seems like we're, we're trying to balance the various constituencies within the, within the organization and with um, always holding at bay the, the threat of 
like pulling a mass pullout of certain individuals in the profession who who aren't really science-based or interested in fact-based issues, who don't believe in climate change, who don't have a, a strong affinity for uh, resolving our, our crisis in the urban, urban centers. So I think that prevents the organization at large to kind of really collectively get behind a single a single point of view at least it, it, that's been my frustration not to say we all have to all have to walk and talk the same way but i think there's some like Catherine pointed out i think there's some certain basic facts we can all agree upon and then you know we can move from that but um that's been been a frustration for myself do you know about the statement of values have you seen that? i have yeah what is your yeah. feelings or position on that as a starting point of what you desire to see as a unified voice? Because I think they have tried. No, I do. I, I do think, um, I think they went a long way after Not My AIA to really embrace what Equity by Design has put together in, in establishing the statement of values. I think my single criticism is follow through when it comes to, there was a, a constant stop and start with uh, really repositioning the uh, president and the CEO to have to constantly restate what they wanted to state initially. And I thought that, you know, one of the things for me that was really important was that they took, they took our voice and they were, wow, we, we hear you. And now we're going to do this thing where we're going to have listening sessions. We're going to have a, open this up. So we're going to hear everybody. We want to hear your, and I think, you know, in that regard, I think it's important, like what Mitch and Catherine have said is that let's have that fight. I'm willing to lose um, membership. If that's what it takes to have an open and honest discussion, we should be the organization that has that open and honest discussion. And I think there isn't a real desire from leadership to actually hear that discussion because I think it'll come, I think it's hard. It's a hard one to have because I think there's going to be battlegrounds. There's going to be sides picked. And I think that's, I think, think that's a bad thing. I think that if you want to talk about a statement of values, I think we have to act on those values. And I don't think that the current leadership is living those values the way they they said they would. I actually think the opposite of that is true. I think that this current, the 2017 administration has, by direct witness of it, you know, immediately trying to put out press releases at the, the eve of getting a press, you know, from a reaction to something that was said by the administration. I've seen that constantly happen. I was on the public outreach committee this past year. And they have been on high alert the entire time, making sure that they have a, a response that is aligned with the statement of values, but also, I think, pushes us forward to do more. But again, that's my opinion because I, I happen to be closer to it. I think communication is a huge challenge. We're inundated with a lot of information on a daily basis, whether it's social media, etc. I don't think their message gets out as clearly or as maybe as quickly or as thoroughly, some people never hear it, right? Because they're just not on social media or they're just not listening or they're not going to the website. So a lot of people don't know about the statement of values. They don't know about the Blueprint for Better campaign that really is trying to you know, get into the communities. Oh, that campaign is awful. You think it's awful? Because yeah, I, I, I criticize it on Instagram just at the surface level of, of its images that it's producing. Yeah, it's Because they're real people. I mean, that's the thing that I find interesting that you're saying it's awful because they actually interviewed a real project and real people and they're trying to highlight real projects and real people doing things that are effective for communities. So I don't know how that could be altogether horrible. 
if it's authentic. Can you explain how, I, I don't think I know about this one, the blueprint for community. So can you give a backstory on that? No, I'm just talking about the, just the images. Cause I don't, again, I, I, yeah. more power to you for having the patience to kind of wade through all the kind of the bureaucracy of the institution. But, but just as far as it's, um, it's image making around the, the film campaign. So it's, I, I might, I'm kind of talking about maybe a, a, a media, you know, also to mm, continue your okay. point about this kind of the, the, the social media, you know, kind of influx. I'm just talking about the film campaign around the blueprint for better, not blueprint for better itself. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. The I Look Up film okay. challenge. Is that? The I Look Up. Yes. It. That's okay. what I'm talking about. Yes. That was, that was really unfortunate on many levels. <laughs> Just the, the way that it was imaged. But, you know, I guess for me, one of the things that's really sad about this past year in terms of architecture is, is we talk often about, you know, in the discipline where we have authority. And, and there's this sense mm-hmm. that our authority is being whittled away by different levels of construction management or, of course, liability issues. Right. And then we have this national crisis at the level of our entire democracy. Right. In terms of the legitimacy of an election where there's a real estate developer who's there. And we have this rollback of so much level of policy around things like relating to climate change and flooding and all of that. And there's this moment when we as a discipline could have stood up there and actually kind of laid out some big picture. You know, big picture about climate change and urbanism, big picture about real estate development and corruption, big picture about globalization and real estate development and finance and where we have control and transparency and where we don't. And instead, it was all fumbled. There's no clarity in any big picture. Instead, every time that there was a rollback, the AIA was silent, except for these little policy things that, as we mentioned, go back to the same priorities around some contractual agreement that is an AIA document for, you know, something that is that is so tangible, like a single family house, right? None of the, the, the really kind of complex issues that, that really impact what our discipline might be able to contribute to, you know? And now we're in the midst of all of these hurricanes, right? We're in the midst of all of these kind of places where the the collapse that we've experienced as a country in a kind of abstract political way becomes incredibly embodied and tangible, right? To the point where Puerto Rico still doesn't have running Mm -hmm. water. And what are we talking about? What are we talking about? There's a lot going on. The question is, where do we choose to spend our time, whether it's the talking or whether it's the doing? Locally, there's the California forest fires. There's a lot of people wanting to help, but then there's the complexity of helping, right? So this has been a debate ongoing is where do you jump in? How do you jump in effectively without one, putting yourself at risk of giving advice that you might be sued about? Let's look at it realistically. We're licensed architects. We're looking out for health, safety, and welfare. We want to be helpful. We want to solve problems, but at the same time, we have to do it carefully, right? So Yes, we could just jump in and give free advice to every person that's been a victim of a certain tragedy, but would that help or hurt that person by giving them advice without them understanding the whole picture of them rebuilding, whether it's from a fire or hurricane or et cetera? Yes, there's the immediate need and then there's immediate responders. And we want to feel that we're helpful as well, but how do we do so in a way without... it's screwing up a process, right? So I'm just taking the California forest fires as an example. There's so many examples. We could be overwhelmed with all of the examples, the corruption, whether it's 
the current administration or not, or just corruption in general, locally or wherever it is, it's happening. And we only have an hour to talk about this, so we have to pick an area to talk about. What are we talking about is a good question, but I thought it was a year in reflection from not my AIA to what are we doing to change that disenfranchisement and where are we now? If we're talking about something else, I'm glad to talk about something else, but that's why I thought we were here. I think that's, that is true. I think there's a lot of what has uh, happened in the past year, even just recently. We have the questions about sexual harassment and sexual assault that have uh, been plaguing Hollywood. Now, the, there's now the questions are starting to be asked, where does it reside in our profession? So that is now um, now an area of focus, an area of concern. We have, you know, the Trump policies that are affecting, you know, urban areas. We have people working in, in the Trump administration that are, are attacking poor in this country. We have we have students being threatened with taking away their tax, uh, their ability to deduct uh, their interest from, and then we have students who are getting PhDs who are under assault. So I think there's a there's a lot that's that's happening faster than social media and the faster than the discussion we can actually get our hands around to have. So there's a lot there's a lot going on, and I think I'm trying to see you know get a sense of you know where we are as a profession, where we are as educators, and you, all of you have some measure if not really deeply connected and what is um, how do you feel about the activism that you're doing? How is that going forward? And I kind of wanted to keep it a little open to kind of talk about things that were on your mind and, and see if, um, you know, we can have a conversation around those issues as well. So I didn't want this to be a, a real focus on AIA per se, but um, certainly was, you know, one of the, one of the things I was thinking about when I uh, was conceiving of this, podcast today? Well, a question that comes back then, are we actually making a safe space within our profession to actually have these conversations without fear of retribution, without fear fear of any negative impacts to really have a critical discussion? Or does this stay within these very tight circles of whether within academia or really activists and progressive firms or like it whispers over drinks, you know, after an event, like are we creating that space for these conversations to happen within first one, you have the institution. And then the second is within maybe larger within our discipline to talk about this and feel safe enough to make statements to challenge what is happening within our country. It's been strange because I've been feeling like we're on this knife's edge again where it doesn't feel quite like 2007, 2008, but I feel like there's this, there's something happening that isn't happening structurally fast enough for us to see where it is. It's going to, you know, but I think a few years down the road, I, I'm wondering, I'm concerned about what the policies are and things that are happening in Washington right now. They take time to implement. It takes time to, to wipe away public education and we're not, we're not, no one's seeing that right now. So I'm wondering, you know, I'm thinking about that as we move forward, what are the things that are happening right now that are going to impact us in the future? And same goes with the profession. Can we, I mean, I talk with you, I talk with the people here on the podcast and, and that's, and I'm, I try to be, try to voice my concerns. The bigger threat is AI, the things that are coming faster to replace what humans can do. And while we might not see that as quickly as other industries, it's out there. And that's part of the result of what has happened in our country with the politics. The fact that there is a generation that's 
losing out. There's a certain set of certain part of the population that feels like it's losing out. And we're not addressing it head on while the technology companies keep creating the technology and advancing it. The implications of it and its social impact are not being fully understood before it's this all out, just profit driven future. Let's go for the future thing, right? The driverless cars or the Ubers of the world, the Airbnbs, they're creating the disruption of housing and transportation issues that we're dealing with right now. But everybody is so gung-ho about moving forward towards the future that we don't think of it holistically of what is it going to do to disenfranchise people further. So Mitch, are you uh, seeing or hearing from students that you have at Princeton, you know, around the PhD program, the concerns that, you know, they're going to be uh, their inability to pay for education or to even get an education um, based on what you've been hearing about the, the current tax plan or tax policy out there? Well, Princeton has the largest endowment per Mm -hmm. capita, I think, in the world or something. So, no. (laughs) The short answer would be no. Um, But I also don't teach PhDs, um, so they may have anxieties that I'm not exposed to. (laughs) Okay. Well, here's, here's something that I think. I think we could actually take ourselves a lot more seriously. You know, I mean, really, I'm in my head, I still live in Detroit, you know, because I was there for the past three and a half years or whatever. And mm-hmm. that's where my, my projects are. And one of the things that I experience when I work with people who have never been a client of architecture before, right, or thought of themselves as a potential client of architecture before, is I not only do I need to kind of go through the process of what an architect does, right, which I think at some level you have to do that with any client, and that's what the AIA contract documents kind of do so well, right? You need to say there's going to be these drawings, there's going to be these phases, right? But I also need to piece out kind of, in a way, kind of dismantle the potential of the discipline from from what people experience architects doing writ large, right? And so if the only time that, that a community or a city hears that architecture is coming is that when it's attached to luxury, right? Or when it is something that is kind of, you know, already just so removed, right? Then it's, there's so much work to be done. And I, and I think that this is work that I, I, I do it individually, but I wish that, that there was a profession doing it with me. You know, there's so much work to be done in terms of not just saying, okay, we're open to everybody coming to the table. We want to look different for a photograph. We want to diversify. But more importantly, saying, what is it that the profession can do completely differently, you know, for the constituents of cities who are already here. And that's where I think that does connect to these questions that also happen at the level of climate change and hurricanes, you know, that when it's part of what the profession does to get out there to not just say, oh, there's a disaster, we have some contracts to deal with it, but to say, wow, what are the patterns? What are the relationships between fires and sprawl, between forest fires and the temperature? right? Between drought and the temperature and fossil fuels. To figure out in a spatial way how we can both work on these things together, right? What would that look like? Research papers, a think tank, right? But also just kind of do some of that explanatory work that I think comparable professional organizations in law or medicine do all the time, right? So I, I think it's got to be a much bigger wake-up call for us, mm-hmm. you know? Not just that, oh, we didn't say the right thing or we were friends with the wrong person, you know, but that we've actually got so much work to do in terms of really configuring how it is we might be taking this work of architecture more seriously. For me, the one takeaway that I've had from 
Orlando, which is great. And seeing Catherine talk about her work is um, the sense that I get is that that's the kind of work that I want to be doing. The, the Where health, safety, and welfare is not enough for me anymore, that the dignity of architecture seems to be lost in many ways. And that should be part of the equation as well. When when uh, the pirate, uh, the ghost ship fire happened in Oakland and I connected, you know, when S surface connected with me and we were having, uh, there was a great document being put together by her and others, how to make these spaces safer. I knew that I was getting in a little bit of a, a difficult area because I was offering my professional advice with, you know, that, that would, could hold, ultimately I could be held accountable for, but I knew that if I could try in some way to kind of you know, offer this, this, this freely available information, this information that's available for anyone to see, but just kind of offer some guidelines to make those spaces safer for people. That felt good to me. And I felt, I felt like I was actually practicing whole, uh, completely mm. as an architect. And I felt really connected to those projects. And I try to do the same thing, even with the clients that I reach out to today, because I think Mitch, you're, you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that gets lost is, uh, you know, I, 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 the clients I deal with a lot of times don't have a lot of money and I'm trying to, you know, real help, help a young Mexican American woman uh, who's a baker. She's, and she wants to open up her own bakery selling these pastries and, you know, telling and walking her through the process about, you know, where there's avenues for grant money in the, in the city of Minneapolis or, how to think about when you're looking at evaluating spaces, what you need to be looking at before you start signing leases. And then, you know, reducing my fee because I know that she's got something that's great. And I know that I could charge somebody for that service a tremendous amount of money, but I don't see any value in it for me. And my value is in really helping this, helping this woman create this business in our community. And that's going to be fantastic. And so I think you're right. I think there's a lot of time not thought about or given to smaller efforts to make lives better that that will transcend communities. So that's kind of where I'm trying to work and I'm trying to do that while having a full-time job. So that's kind of what I, I'm been trying to do and trying to push the discussion along. I went to the AIA regional for the Ohio Valley and, and Catherine gave a, a 45 minute talk where she just for 45 minutes was just hitting very, uh, salient points and, and really kind of wowing the crowd with what uh, the clarity of her mission. And I think that was a very good takeaway for me to, to kind of realize that this was, yeah, this was good. I was, uh, I, this is what I wanted to do. So could you talk a little bit more about what you're doing, Catherine, in, in Chicago? Sure. I'm, it's, it's funny because what we do at the firm now is what I kind of always thought architecture was supposed to be. I think it's, I've been very fortunate where I got kicked out of any out of any traditional pathways within the profession because of the recession. So you have to recalibrate what you can do and what you can't do. And, you know, it's part of being incredibly naive as a young professional and being incredibly bold at the same time in that way that being in your late 20s or early 20s when you're, you know, a an architect or think you're going to do architectural things, you could allow yourself to be much more imaginative without these constraints of other preconceived professional practice barriers, right? And I think what that's what's so exciting about the practices that are coming out now is I think they're really incredible architects because almost solely for the fact that they don't make 
what is thought of by many people as traditional architecture. It's a, it exhibits, it's events, it's publications, it's research. And I think that's what's pushing our profession forward. In our own small way, what we're looking at within latent design is how do we make better spaces and understanding how do we provide the services for a larger general public in very restricted environments, whether it's restricted through access or finance or policy. That's what we're working with. And we did it within a way of trying to understand how can we actually truly make this our business, right? How do we make this an architectural firm that has enough to survive? The most recent project that we've worked on is a very simple one. I mean, it's a small and simple one. It's a 200 square foot pop-up retail shop. It doesn't sound like much at all, but to make that even small building exist, we had to write new municipal policy to pass city council. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and all of that, just that exercise alone has been um, incredibly rewarding. And I've understood so much about how the built environment actually works. It kind of just recalibrated my whole entire head of how buildings come to be, right? <laughs> it was another re-education that I wish I had much earlier in life. And from that, we are able then to see and make provocations of what could this impact be within a different type of community or economic ecosystem within our city? What does it look like when we can have spaces and we can support businesses that only and individuals that really only make $40,000 a year and are trying to get by? What does it look like when we when we tweak our building code in ways that allow for different types of construction to exist? And it's coming from these very small and incremental moves that are slowly, slowly, slowly making larger impacts because we in our profession we kind of have this scenario where if you want to shift the impossible you want to shift something within your projects it's usually very large and very powerful design or developer firms can make that happen we know that that's kind of the we made that built environment we made that system exist today where it's one power structure against another and you get these unfortunate David versus Goliath scenarios right and so what we're looking at is what does it look like when we can, actually show progress through small incremental moves? And then what does it look like when it, it can it impact a larger system? And by doing that and setting that example, can that create pathways for other people to replicate? So how do we bring small scale improvements? How do we bring small scale development? How do we build back our block our blocks right through the individuals and make those resources start to happen now sharing what we learned about policy sharing what we learned about finance sharing what we learned about building and design and construction back out and becoming a knowledge resource through that little 200 square foot project i really respect both mitch and catherine's work but it is at a small scale and i take a slightly different approach in the goliaths of the world if you will that we still need champions at the large firms, we still need large firms to be able to lead with ideas about whether it's empathy or design that has a mindfulness about the clients, the end users, the public at large of the spaces that we are designing. And it is kind of my personal charge to be somebody who inspires that kind of thinking in larger practices. One of the kind of motivators of joining Smith Group was to be able to bring that thought mentality to a larger organization and to be able to filter that through in the projects that we do, right? So I don't think it's a, I, I respect small firms for being able to do that in a more agile way. 
But I also think it's our responsibility to make sure that we don't forget about the large organizations that do exist and how do we instill positive culture in having more empathetic buildings that are in tune with the users that occupy those buildings, whether they're you know patients of healthcare clinics, et cetera, or the public at large and not feeling that it's only space for some people and not others, right? So we have a lot of work to do, but that's my personal position. That's important. I mean, um, I mean, you deal with a, a, a lot larger typology and a larger group uh, set of users. And I think it's a much more complex set of issues and that you can't get down into the, um, that you, you can't really get down on that on the, the smaller constituent level. Um, so, and plus you have a, you have a, a, a charge to bring along younger professionals, emerging professionals into the profession. And I really appreciate your, uh, your voice and what you've done for the, uh, for the AIA and your model for what we want to see, at least for me, or what I want to see in a profession in, in terms of how we educate these emerging professionals and future practitioners. And transforming practice in the process. I mean, it's, exactly. it's a big whale, yes, and we have to take our bites. But pay equity being something of our current you know, focus, there's been a lot of articles that my uh, colleague, Annalisa Pitts, has written about the root of pay inequity and what we could do about it. So our personal goal is to get to the root of these challenges, to be able to dissect the nuances so that we can tackle them and that we can prescribe solutions, um, whether it's aggregated through other resources or it's things that firms are doing and that are working. But the salary calculator that AIA actually put out is being leveraged by many people in their negotiating process knowing their worth, but also advocating for it. And then being... I used it. I used it too. <laughs> I used it. I used it and I, and I, and I, this is the first time I ever actually asked for my value. And it was, the, it was, it was quite liberating. That's I, awesome. I, and I finally figured out how to answer that question. So I want to thank the AI for that. You know, I, look, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't say that. a lot of the reason why I asked the three of you, and I would have had S surface on as well. Um, but if we were thinking that the technical issues, and I'm surprised this has gone as well as it has. We not, we've not had this. We would have, if we had Paul and, and Donna on, there would have been, <laughs> that would really would have tried the connection here. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that. All of you have, have joined me, but there's an op-ed out today, I think in the New York times, um, and it was really, it's related to the Harvey Weinstein and everything else. And it was talking about, and again, I think it was kind of, it's timed with the year out from, you know, and it was talking about the bullshit that Hillary Clinton had to go through all the, the, the shit and the women are like, they're talking about it on Twitter right now about not just being angry, but being like, fuck you. I mean, yeah, I have a right to be angry and, and not apologizing for their anger. And, and as women of color, queer women, women across class distinction, class background. I mean, how, how do you feel? I mean, you know, I, and I'll tell you, I'm going to the AIA Minneapolis convention next week, conference next week. And there's a session that um, I tried to get into and it's closed and it's about uh, women architects. And I wanted to go and I was going back and forth and I asked my fiance who's in the lean in organization, not officially, but she's a lean in organizer. And I've kind of felt weird. I'm like, on the one hand, I really think I should go because I really think I need to be listening to what. And then on the other hand, I'm like, this is a space for women and they've, they want to have a voice and not have men around to be. So I'm struggling with that. And she said, you need to go and listen. You need to go and hear this conversation. You need to be a part, just, even if you're just actively listening. And so 
part of my wanting to have you on is I'm trying to actively listen and hope that um, I that you could tell me. I mean, how, I mean, we have this we have this groper in chief, and we have all of this stuff that's happening right now, and we have these issues of sexual harassment that are really starting to kind of come to the surface. I, I don't even want I can't even say they're coming to the surface. They're always there, but they're now being really talked about openly. I mean, how do you feel about the discussion that's currently happening around this, around gender issues? It's about time that it's being discussed openly, more openly than it ever has before. But I think there's still pushback or the the judgment factor, right? Even amongst women, it's shocking to me, but it's out there of hearing, well, you know, it's the people that wear certain clothes or whatever. And there's just a lot of I'll call it deeply embedded biases that our society shovel feeds us on a daily basis about how we should act, what our roles are in this society, and those that don't fit into that. But I think it starts there. It starts how we grow up and how certain tropes are kind of inadvertently, you know, shoveled into our kind of, this is how you should act or be. There was a a report that The Economist did on the construction industry, and and it was really revelatory about how massively unproductive the construction industry is. And and I bring that up because I think that's sort of an open secret with anyone who is a a professional (laughs) in the built environment, right? right? But it's something that we are not allowed to talk about until there's like a really, you know, researched, clear article in a reputable journal. I, I feel like, you know, with, with Harvey Weinstein and, and these, you know, these these shifts, to me, the, the thing to, to really hone in on is is the open secret aspect. You know, there was the, the New York Times did a little compilation of clips of all of the mentions in different TV shows and Oscar awards of his assault and coercion on, on different women and his threat to them. Right. So this was an open secret. Right. Mm-hmm. I think architecture, I think as a profession, right, is so full of open secrets. I mean, just just chock full of weird open secrets around what's valuable and, you know, what beauty has to do with the pastoral and who gets to inhabit the pastoral and what Europe has to do with anything. And, you know, what what the suburbs, how it works in relationship to the city. And I mean, just chock full of so many open secrets. And if there's anything to take away here, I think, yeah, there's there's something to take away about sort of maybe patriarchy and violence. And maybe the most important thing is that architecture operates within a society. Right. But I think, I think for us, there's, you know, again, as far as us taking ourselves seriously, I think one of the things that we could take much more seriously is how we do work on the the open secrets in, in our field. So, uh, where do you, where do you see us a year from now, Nostradamus, prosticator and prognosticators, where do you, what are you seeing and what do you see a year out? I mean, it seems like as I get older, a year, it seems very short and it is short. <laughs> it seems to get shorter and shorter and shorter the older I get. And I, I, I still can't wrap my mind around that it's been a year since the last uh, election. Where do you see our country, our profession, education, Mitch, activism in architecture? I mean, if there's like a final thought. Oh, well, you said education. So, I mean, as, as far as I, I think that the university is an exciting place right now. The students are, you know, kind of actively engaged with the, the question of, of the society. Um, and so then there's, a you know, within architecture, there's always what does that what does that mean for the discipline? And I, and I think that's 
there's a lot of potential there. It's harder when we start the other way, when we're like, okay, what does the discipline have to do with society? I think when we already have a kind of critique or an ambition of the social, and then we figure out how does it do work in the discipline, we're onto something. Um, so I think the students are onto something. I hope that I'm onto something. You know, here at Princeton, one of the things that, that I'm really enjoying is the connection with the humanities. It's uh, one of the few you know, kind of well-known architecture programs in the country that grew out of an art history and archaeology department as opposed to an engineering department. So I, I have rich connections with folks in art history and African-American studies, which is a new department for Princeton, actually. And so just kind of really figuring out what can the theoretical work do differently is something that I'm excited about. So, yeah, I think there's at least within the academy, I think there are things that can happen in a year that are that are different. It's funny that you bring up the connection between architecture and humanities. I know there's a, a large institution here in Chicago that doesn't have an architecture program, so you could probably figure this out really quickly. And they're, as they're trying to develop what architecture and urbanism track or even so boldly if they're endowed a school might look like it's there's been this undercurrent of you know what department does it really come with if it's not its own school is it with humanities or is it with you know engineers is it within art history and you kind of see where these threads of what architecture used to be and how traditionally it was aligned or thought of are kind of coming together as you get new ownership of not only endowment funds but then also a new educational and academic pathway. But I think it's interesting what you're talking about, this this growth and this connection between the humanities and or and architecture. And also I think what you said about society leading the discipline versus the other way around is a very profound observation. I wonder now if my students are doing that or not, or if I'm doing that or not. How about you, Rosa? A year out from now. I have a focus, ambitious focus. We're going to be launching our third survey for equity and architecture. We're looking to get 10,000 responses to keep pushing the needle forward on equitable practice goals. And at this time next year, we will have our uh, fifth symposium on the subject matter and the key findings from that. So that's on a short term, or I, I should say uh, more closer to home scale. And on the larger scale, I'm hoping to see more people get involved as citizen architects. I've been trying to support that not only personally, but getting people to serve on planning commissions, on board of education, uh, whether it's design or on the policy and even running for government. There's a she should run campaign going on, getting more women to run for public offices. So I think that's going to be really important in pushing for things that we want to happen. We saw some of that happened last night with some of the outcomes of people running in reaction to things. And I think that's going to push us at least in the right direction. I don't know if it's going to solve anything. What about with AIA San Francisco? AIA San Francisco, I am about to embark on my presidency. So we are going to be concentrating on themes around the new urban agenda, which is part of the UN conference in Quito that happened last year. What that entails is looking at issues on a spectrum of housing, urban issues, as well as transportation, clean air, clean water. I know it's a lot climate change, but it seems like a way to be able to get a lot of different people to the table, not just architects, but we're going to be reaching out to the local city governments, SPUR, which is a Bay Area organization about urban development, ULI. I think there's a lot of partners at play in 
solving the issues that we find very complex. Can can I make a quick plug? Sure, of course. Okay, any architects who've done work for the Trump Organization or Kushner companies, please upload anything you have that that might be kind of shady practices to archileaks.us. That's archileaks.us, and and I think it's important that that we are part of sharing the information that might radically just open up, you know, legitimacy in our democracy again. Absolutely. Thank you. I didn't even know I didn't even know about ArchiLeaks until just now. So I'm very fascinated. And I look forward to figuring it and reading through it now. I just Please, looked it up. Just check it out. There's stuff up there. There's a statement and it's an open page. It, it, it's looking for input, but there are connections involved who are very interested in, in what architects might have to share. Very good. That's awesome. All right. Thank you so much again for joining me today. All right. Thanks again. Bye. 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 Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thanks to everyone out there listening, and thanks to Rosa, Mitch, and Catherine for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach out to us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with the hashtag ArcNect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. We really do appreciate your feedback. Thanks for joining us, and talk to you next time.